Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, a senior fellow in the Americas program at CSIS and the co-host of the 35 West podcast. Mexican but government. are we ready? Um, I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. In the early morning hours of April 21st, the Honduran Congress unanimously repealed a 2013 law governing the establishment of zones for employment and economic development, Zonas de Empleo y Desarrollo Económico, or ZEDES, in Spanish. The ZEDES find themselves at the center of a storm in Honduras and featured in President Xiomara Castro's campaign rhetoric, where she sought to connect them to the policies of Juan Orlando Hernandez. This week, we are joined by Matthew Rooney, Director of Outreach and Strategic Partnerships at the George W. Bush Center. Matthew returns to 35 West today to discuss the future of the CEDES in light of the recent congressional action and what it means for Honduras's economic future. In this episode, we will discuss the options available to investors, the Honduran government, as well as the challenges and opportunities presented by the CEDES model. Thank you for joining us today, Matthew. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. Pleasure to be back on 35 West. Matthew, you've spent your career in both the public and private sector, analyzing trade, competitiveness, and growth throughout the hemisphere. Let's begin by sketching the current economic climate in Honduras and where the ZEDES fit into this picture. Honduras has been heavily impacted by the pandemic, natural disasters, as well as endemic rule of law challenges. Even before the pandemic, Honduras's economic growth was uneven and went through fits and starts. So what are the main barriers to growth in Honduras coming out of the pandemic? Well, Ryan, I, I think you outlined a couple of them just then. And Honduras is certainly one of the most fragile economies in the region, one of the most fragile societies and polities, really, in the region. And I know there's a lot of debate about uh, sort of the root causes of migration. And those root causes are the same as the main barriers to, to growth, finally. I mean, you're talking about uh, an economy that simply can't absorb what is a long-term demographic bulge. A large number of young people graduating from school, graduating from institutions of training every year, far outstripping the economy's ability to produce jobs, to absorb them. And that, that fact that the economy can't produce enough jobs to absorb those young people is because of a, an investment environment that's, that's simply a difficult, makes Honduras a difficult place to do business. And I think even the American companies, there are you know, a list of American companies who've been active in Honduras for many, many years, textile manufacturers, among others. But also in, uh, in the financial services and telecommunications, there's a wide range of American companies who've invested in Honduras. And I think they would be uni- unanimous in saying that it's a tough place to, to do business, certainly a tough place to do business while staying within the bounds of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act as an American company must. And so there's a sense in which uh, our Honduran friends sort of can't get out of their own way in terms of how to produce jobs to absorb those people. And as long as that's the case, those people are going to find a future somewhere. And, and many of them, you know, have family and other relationships in the United States and know that there's possibilities in the United States. And so that's the ultimate uh, sort of a mainspring of that dynamic, which is also one of the major problems in, in creating a, you know, a, a growing economy there. Matthew, recent polling data released by Gallup suggests that 75% of Hondurans believe the top priority of the Castro administration should be creating new jobs, not abolishing the ZEDES. Why has the government instead elected to prioritize attacking these zones within its first 100 days? I would hesitate to characterize Xiomara Castro's 
motivations. I don't, I don't know what's, I don't know her mind. My guess is that the target is just too fat and juicy, too irresistible. You know, the Zede uh, model is one of the few sort of positive accomplishments of the Juan Orlando Hernandez administration, which was otherwise tarnished by allegations of narcotics trafficking against the president and his family, President Hernandez, that is. And so she campaigned against the Zedes, and therefore she is committed to, to abolishing them if she can. And, and, and I think, I think that the problem of Zedes or, or the political problem that she, that she has created uh, with that campaign is more complicated than she thought when she was campaigning. And so it's, a, it's an open question as to whether she'll actually succeed in abolishing Zedes. But I think that I think the political target is just irresistible, uh, something she's wedded to from the campaign. And so she sort of has no political choice but to pursue it. The rhetoric surrounding the Zedes is often highly polarized. Proponents cite large job creation and investment potential, while critics claim they erode Honduran sovereignty. The result has been a severe lack of technical information on how the Zedes actually operate and what their real benefits are. Based on your experiences, Matthew, with special economic zones in the region, how would you say the Zedes differ from the models we have seen in the past? What are the strengths and weaknesses of this model? So my personal experiences of special economic zones is mostly with the more traditional form of what we used to call a free trade zone or a free trade area, which were essentially customs, in-bond customs zones, right, where you could import something into the country integrate it into another product and re-export it, and you didn't have to pay customs duties on that product as it came into the country. You usually had to pay a bond, you know, against the possibility that, that things would leak out into the local economy. But that's a fairly limited, a fairly limited model. And, and that had a number of weaknesses. And one of those was because of that tax benefit, some people would call it a tax subsidy that was given to the operators inside those special economic zones. The areas around them, the municipalities and communities around the zone, which were not inside the zone, uh, were deprived of tax revenues. And so you had large numbers of people moving into those areas to take jobs in those areas. Uh, but then the city found itself unable to provide basic city services because it wasn't getting the tax revenue that you would expect from those um, jobs. And so I think the Zedes were an attempt to address that weakness by, uh, in effect, broadening the zone and broadening the functions of the special economic zone so that they could become residential areas in addition to places where factories located. And that would enable the zone to collect a revenue that they could use to provide wastewater services, electricity services, securities in the streets, and so on, the kinds of things that cities provide. That sort of touches on another weakness of the, of the whole thing, which is those communities outside the special economic zones, which were outside the purview of the companies operating in the zone, their employees were commuting from regular communities where uh, all the ills of those places were on display, right? The streets were not safe, gangs were rife, drug dealing was rife. Uh, you couldn't just send your kids to walk to school. And so the idea of the Zede, I think, was to create a place where those things could be brought under the control of a, of a transparent sort of responsible fiduciary mechanism that could collect the revenues and, and provide the services in a way that people would have confidence in. And so 
that's, I think, the real reason why ZAs existed or came into existence. And your question's right. The, the, the model has its strengths and weaknesses. Its strengths are that it actually does create a more responsive, more responsible uh, fiduciary agent who can collect taxes and provide services in ways that municipalities in Honduras, because of weak governance structures and whatever else, find it more difficult to do. The weakness is still sort of the weakness of the special economic zone, which is ultimately the problem is a dysfunction at the heart of Honduran politics, and and the Zede hasn't cured that. And the idea, I think it's I think it was um, Paul Romer who who felt that you could uh, create a demonstration effect where communities would want to adopt these models once they saw that they were successful. That's the thinking of an economist, not a political scientist. And I think demonstration effects don't work that way. And so the weakness of the model is that it really doesn't address those underlying, uh, those underlying factors. Um, it's sort of a workaround. The Zetas have proven their ability to create jobs and attract investment, but exactly how this will impact Honduras's overall economic trajectory remains unclear. In your opinion, what are the best average and worst case scenarios for the Zetas' impact on economic development? Yeah, so that's that's the big question, isn't it? I, I mean, you know, best case is that Paul Romer turns out to be right, and and the municipalities around the ZAs go, oh look what they've done, and we could only we could do that too if only we would, I don't know what, change the way we campaign for office. I mean, you know, you're in a democratic setting; it's, the dynamic is hard to argue with. That's the best case that that, that communities around the ZAs go, oh, I want to be that, and so let me become that. Average, I think, is that the ZAs you know, become places where people can live and work in relative security and people want to move into them and and uh, and companies want to move into them and they actually do attract a level of investment, uh, more investment maybe than Honduras would have attracted in the absence of that mechanism. And they, they at least become places of, you know, sort of relative security and peace where people can live out their lives and send their kids to school and go out to the movies on a Friday evening without being molested at every turn by gangbangers. Worst case, I think, is that none of that comes to pass, that the, the investment doesn't flow uh, and that the ZDs, you know, somehow fail, like they don't attract enough companies to fund the infrastructure that they've put in place. Ultimately, they'll have to find some, something else to do with that infrastructure. And so I think it's a gamble, not a bad gamble. I think the average scenario is probably the most likely, but it's still a bit of a gamble. One of the core elements of the Biden administration's root causes strategy, which you've mentioned already, has been to leverage the private sector in creating economic opportunities for the Northern Triangle. What role can the ZAs play in supporting this strategy? Well, they support it and they don't, I think, in my view. I mean, they certainly support it in the sense that uh, if it turns out to be true, that they can attract a level of investment that wouldn't otherwise uh, flow to Honduras or Central America, the Northern Triangle then they will, they will be addressing what the Biden administration has identified as the root causes, namely job creation. Uh, but as I alluded to earlier, I, I think that the root causes are actually deeper than that, that the inability to attract investment and create jobs is a systemic weakness that uh, simply kind of pushing more investment into Honduras doesn't address. It may well attract jobs or create jobs, and, and therefore, you know, it probably addresses the root causes of migration in a sort of me- short to maybe medium term sense. But as soon as the Zetas aren't there anymore, as soon as that political pressure from the US government is not there anymore, as soon as those, let's call them what they are, subsidies from, from organizations like Development Finance Corporation, as soon as those things are not there, that investment is gonna dry up and those jobs will go away. So the real root causes, in my view, are 
a business environment that is uh, that is a tough place to do business, a tough, pla- tough place to make a profit in. Uh, it has to do with uh, things like the cost of energy, the cost of electrical power, obviously security in the streets. And then there's a whole lot of arcana that nobody in the White House ever wants to talk about. You know, elements of the commercial code that make it hard to take out a loan, elements of the banking code that make it hard for a small business to get a loan. And those those are sort of technical problems that your politico, especially in the United States, finds boring and therefore difficult to talk about. But ultimately, those are the reasons why you don't get more investment in Honduras. And, and ultimately, that's what's driving the migration. The April 21st vote did not technically abolish ZEDES. To begin with, it must be ratified in 2023 and observe a transitory period of legal stability for up to several decades. However, if the Honduran government continues to press towards abolishing ZEDES, it may spark a fierce legal battle that weakens investor confidence in Honduras and is in no party's best interest. How likely is it that this vote, in your opinion, Matthew, will have spillover effects on investor confidence in Honduras, even among those who may have no intention of investing in a ZEDE in the first place? I'm tempted to react to that question in a way that I probably shouldn't, uh, which is, it's almost 100% likely that it will have an impact on investor confidence, but investor confidence in Honduras is pretty low to start with. So whether we're talking about something that's going to really change the course of change the trajectory of the Honduran economy or not is another problem. But one of the things, in addition to the kind of factors I alluded to a moment ago, electrical power, you know, uh, another thing is the small size of the market in those countries. I looked up numbers not long ago. I focused a little more on El Salvador. I realized that the land area of El Salvador is almost exactly the same as the land area of Dallas-Fort Worth. And the population of El Salvador is only a little more than the population of Dallas-Fort Worth. But the economy of Dallas-Fort Worth is 25 times bigger than the economy of El Salvador. So when you have that kind of small market, you're making it tough for people. It's tough to get economies of scale. It's tough to really prosper. So there's lots of reasons why investors have hesitation about moving into Honduras. And this, I, this, this uh you know, sense that something that was supposed to be guaranteed for whatever it was, 99 years, can all of a sudden be thrown out by a successor government doesn't help at all. How likely is it, in your opinion, that the Castro government and the Sedes reach some type of accord? Oh, that's probably that's probably fairly likely. The challenge, of course, is that the Castro administration can't be seen to be backing down, right? If they, this is a sort of their key argument for why they should be president, right? So they have to they have to come away from any interaction with the Zedes with a win of some kind. And the Zedes are, you know, they're business people. They want to figure out how to make money. And and you're telling them that the rules that they came in on are no longer in effect. Uh, they just want to know what the new rules are ultimately. And so I would think that an agreement would be possible. The the hard part is going to be giving the Castro administration a win without so changing the economics of the Zedes that they become, you know, unviable. Is there a role for the U.S. government to try and support such a modus vivendi between the Castro government and the Zedes? What about international institutions? I think the answer to that question is probably yes. My guess is there's a certain level of discomfort in the U.S. government over the Zedes. You know, there's a very widespread impression in Washington that the uh, the business environment in, and not just in Honduras, it's not a tag only on Honduras, but rather many countries in that region, 
is so corrupt that it's hard to find business partners that you can deal with without risking getting your hands dirty. And so I think it's going to be hard for the U.S. government to like take the side of the ZDA operators because you don't know who those are in all cases or what, what their kind of background is, what they, what they come to the ZDA wanting. I think they could if they wanted to play a role, but I, but I, would, I would assume that uh, my, my expectation would be that they're going to find it hard to have confidence that they are dealing with clean players. International institutions might be able to play a more constructive role if they were able to kind of sort of get inside the financing of Azeta and give themselves a seat on the board and give them themselves and investors and, and governments like the United States confidence that they're dealing with clean players. You can imagine the Inter-American Development Bank being able to play such a role, but it would take a financial commitment and it would take putting people on the board and, and getting inside the governance of Azeta in order to make it credible, I think. While the ZAs have certainly received the most press coverage in recent weeks, it is important to recognize that Central America is home to dozens of special economic zones with a diverse set of operating norms and rules. Let's unpack briefly where the ZAs fit in the broader regional context. China has been working to set up its own special economic zone in El Salvador, which would encompass nearly half of that country's coastline and something like 14% of its total territory. Can the ZEDES serve as a sort of counter-offer to this Chinese model and one more closely aligned with Western-oriented capital, free markets, and open competition? So I'll get to your question in a second. Can you imagine the political dynamic that would permit a national leader to say to his people, you know what, I'm going to give 14% of our, ter- of our national territory to a, a group of Chinese business people and let them run it. It's hard for me to understand how, you know, how, it, how a democratic dynamic could support that. But I guess that says something about something that, that it seems to be happening. Uh, I think the ZDA is a reasonable counteroffer to the Chinese model. You know, talk about a demonstration effect. It shouldn't take long for the Chinese SEZ model to prove itself sort of corrupt and incompetent and, and unable to do a better job of providing services and essentially just a mechanism for extracting wealth from a poor country and transferring it to a relatively wealthy country, China. And so a more sort of business-oriented, capitalist-oriented, free market-oriented model like the ZDA uh, should be a pretty persuasive counteroffer. Remains to be seen whether that can actually work and, and exactly what's going to happen, obviously, with the Chinese SEZ. The Chinese sling a lot of money around uh, and they've They've slung a lot of money around in El Salvador in the last three or four years. And uh, so far, there's, I think, not a lot to show for it. So, uh, you know, the thing like that could lose steam pretty quickly if it, if it proves to be a boondoggle. What lessons should be taken from the ZEDES for those interested in setting up similar zones elsewhere in the hemisphere? So to me, the fact that the Castro administration has um, essentially taken office in opposition to the ZEDES and accomplishment of its predecessor, and now wants to throw them out the window, points to the, for me, fundamental lesson, which is something like this really has to be deeply embedded in the country's politics. You can't use something like this to give yourself a free pass around the politics of the country. And a more successful ZDA model would have been negotiated between the parties by the Juan Orlando Hernandez administration and come out with some of, quote unquote, bipartisan imprimatur that would have been able to survive a transfer of a change of administrations. And, and to me, that's fundamentally the lesson of the ZDA. 
the whole Zeta idea, which is it's an attempt to find a workaround around a dysfunctional domestic politics. And ultimately, there's no way around that. And so depending on what your investment horizon is, is if, you know, if, if, uh, if the term of a presidential, if a presidential term of office of whatever it is in Honduras, five years is enough for you, then you do you. But don't necessarily expect it to survive, you know, through the next presidential administration if you haven't done your political homework. Matthew, there's, is there something that we did not cover? Anything else that you would like to highlight or add? This is sort of a hobby horse for me that these debates over sort of the root causes or the Zetas or whatever it is in Central America and in other places in the world. As Americans, as we, when we engage in these debates, I think we have to be careful about the fact that we're engaging in them from our domestic political perspective, right? We're trying to, the, the, the root causes debate is not really about the economic policies of Central America. It's about a domestic political problem that the United States has and that we want to solve. And that's, it, it, that, that is the way it is. And so, so you have to accept that. But I think it's worth keeping that in mind. And I think a more thoughtful approach would be to look long-term, ask ourselves, you know, what is the reason for this political dysfunction and policy dysfunction in these countries that is producing the, pro- the domestic problem that we have? And, and could we perhaps more durably and more effectively solve our domestic problem by focusing more on the domestic problems that are unfolding in those countries? And I think in the, in the relatively few instances where we have done that in foreign policy, Plan Colombia springs to mind, we've been very successful. But in, in, in instances where we focus exclusively on solving our domestic political problem, we occasionally solve our domestic political problem for some period of time, but we generally don't solve it forever because we're not looking at the real root causes. Matthew Rooney, Director of Outreach and Strategic Partnerships at the George W. Bush Center. Thank you for joining us on 35 West today. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate your interest. For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.